Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, November 20th, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. Hard to believe this is the last Wednesday of the year before Thanksgiving. Uh, next or next Thursday, Thanksgiving. Uh, we'll be taking off next week, but this is our last show before that. And we welcome uh, tonight's guest, Dr. Douglas Miller. He's a professor at University of North Carolina at Asheville in the Atmospheric Science Program. He knows a lot about Northwest Florida. We've talked about this from time to time. We even show you some uh, live streaming cameras from time to time up in the mountains. So tonight, Hopefully, you'll have a better understanding of exactly what we mean when we talk about these Northwest Flow snow events. So we uh, encourage you to interact with us tonight. We're streaming on Periscope and Facebook Live and all those other uh, streaming outlets. So if you have any questions, please, please feel free to drop them in the comments or tweet us at Carolina WX Group, and we'll be monitoring those throughout the show. So again, show number 301. We uh, want to thank everyone who watched last week's show, show number 300. It was a special show for all of us, and we hope you enjoyed that. So with that, I'm going to bring in uh, Evan Fisher. Uh, Evan uh, is good friends with Doug. And so, Evan, I'll let you uh, kind of kick off the show tonight with uh, with our guest, Dr. Miller. Yeah, thanks, Scotty. So I, know I got to know Dr. Miller a couple of years ago in high school uh, as I was doing some research, and he really mentored me and helped me out with that um, in the realm of Northwest Flow Snowfall. And if you've been listening to the podcast for any period of time, you know that I absolutely love this topic. Um, this will probably be my favorite show of all time because I love talking about snow and anything uh, Western North Carolina related. Um, so without further ado, Dr. Miller, would you um, mind telling us a little bit about your weather journey and how you got to be um, involved in, in this crazy thing that we call the weather? Yeah, so I actually wanted to be a fighter pilot for the U.S. Air Force. And you can see on my face, I have these uh, big glasses that are uh, throwing some glare onto the camera. And so unfortunately, my dreams of being a pilot were short-lived. But in preparing for that life, I uh, did a little bit of research and learned that weather was kind of an important thing for pilots to have an understanding of. And uh, that's kind of what got me started. And I was fortunate to go to high school where they had a course actually in meteorology, and that sealed the deal. Oh my gosh, I cannot get my thing off mute. Um, that's pretty amazing. I cannot imagine having uh, meteorology classes in high school. That sounds like the dream. How did you end up at UNC Asheville? Well, I was uh, working as a civilian for the Navy out at the Navy Postgraduate School in Monterey. And I was a research advisor for a uh, master's student out there who actually was an undergraduate and a baseball player at UNC Asheville. And he said, uh, at that time, I had pretty young kids, a young family. He said, you know, if you want to go to a place that's more affordable and a great place to raise a family, you should check out the Asheville area and check out UNC Asheville. So I did, and uh, that's why we're here, basically. <laughs> Absolutely, that's awesome. Um, let's go ahead and hop into tonight's topic, Northwest Flow of Snow. Um, just to get a general baseline, can you tell us what is Northwest Flow uh, Snowfall? Sure, so uh, you get a cold front coming through associated with our mid-latitude cyclone, and uh, soon after the surface cold front comes through, you get these winds, of course, that are blowing from the northwest. And that is the optimal angle between the winds and the primary ridge line to force some uh, really good rising motion that can generate these uh, local orographic clouds that can be fairly persistent even long after the cold front has moved by. So as long as you get a pressure gradient that doesn't change its direction or strength for very long, uh, 
you can get quite a bit of snow and the higher elevations can accumulate as much as anywhere from six inches to a foot. And if you get a multi-day event, which is not unusual, uh, you can you know, get over a foot of snow. So Doug, kind of uh, piggybacking on that, coming from the Northwest, uh, driven by winds that are settling down to the surface, we, we kind of assume high pressures involved, low pressures involved, but also there's a connection to the Great Lakes on this event. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the Great Lakes weather affects the South, Southern Appalachians? Sure. So uh, Blair Holloway, as a master's degree student uh, at NC State, did some simulations with the wharf model and uh, watched for cases where it was pretty clear the low level uh, flow was coming over the Great Lakes. And so there are two things the Great Lakes can do. Of course, they can uh, humidify the air parcels like they do for, you know, lake effect snow events, but they also uh, are relatively warm. So they can also help to destabilize the lower atmosphere. And uh, Blair actually found that the destabilization effect was almost as important or maybe even slightly more important than the humidifying of the air parcels. So when you get the air traveling in just the right direction that they travel over the Great Lakes and then make their way into the mountains, then you're going to get really uh, good enhanced snowfall with the Northwest flow snow. Most of the time, climatologically speaking, you're going to get that favorable fetch upstream for West Virginia and a little bit further north of there. So that's why a lot of the ski areas in West Virginia get some great snow out of Northwest flow snow. And we do every once in a while, but the best place in North Carolina is definitely up in the Beach Mountain area. Yeah, Blair Holloway's, he, he's here at the National Weather Service where I live in Charleston. Yes. So uh, he's um, Great individual, very, very smart guy. Um, so we talked you know, about the Great Lakes connection. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there. You know, we, we tend to sort of associate some of these events with what's called shore waving. Sometimes we get a low that's drawing this, this cold front across the country. So we have this air that's cooling, condensing, drawing down to the surface and then rising back up the mountains. And sometimes another area of low pressure develops just lee side of the mountain, or I'm sorry, windward side of the mountains to sort of drive that even further down. And I uh, want you to kind of, guide us on that and tell us some of that phenomenon. Do the models pick it up and uh, maybe too many questions there, but just, you know, how, how do we see this coming? Sure. Uh, we used to have a group uh, composed of weather service forecasters and, and university researchers. So Dr. Baker Perry at App State is another person. And the reason that we kind of formed the group, uh, Steve Kate and the Sioux up at uh, Roanoke Blacksburg kind of spearheaded the group. Uh, the reason we had that group is because at that time in the early 2000s, the models really didn't do a very good job. It was really a mesoscale effect, and the models at that time didn't have the resolution to, to do a very good job. So it was really basically trying to understand some of the physics, some of the microphysics, and the anticyclone building behind the cold front. If you can get that to kind of build with the ridge axis kind of in the Mississippi Valley, then you can set up the optimal pressure gradient strength and orientation with those two features to get northwest flow snow for as long as possible. Now, every once in a while, you do get a, a lee cyclone that, that can form uh, on the North Carolina side of the mountains, and that can help enhance things. Uh, but that tends to be somewhat of a rare event. Um, but it's primarily the cyclone up over Maine and then the anticyclone building in the Mississippi uh, River Valley that really helps to get the favorable conditions. So Dr. Miller, you're kind of given some specific locations like Beach Mountain, but what are the areas that most often see these events uh, throughout the, uh, the winter time? 
Well, in terms of the Appalachians, definitely West Virginia gets the the most snow out of these things. And then as you uh, travel a little bit further south into the Appalachians, then they get a little bit less amount. But within the state of North Carolina, by far, you know, the high country up in the, the Boone area, uh, they get a fair amount of snow. And then as you travel, I would say down into uh, Max Patch, into further south in the Appalachians, then things drop off pretty quickly. So uh, Dr. Baker Perry did a study as part of his PhD work, a uh, paper that came out of that, that showed that uh, for some of the northern mountains here in North Carolina, that the uh, Northwest Flow snow could used to account for, you know, as much as maybe a quarter to a third of the annual snowfall. So it used to be a fairly substantial fraction within that area. And I, I'm not aware of what the percentage is for West Virginia, but I'm sure it's got to be higher than that, at least 50%. Can I hop in here real quick, Scotty, before your question and ask? Yeah, yeah, uh, so you're saying used to. Has there been a downtake in frequency in these events? Well, one of uh, Baker Perry's recent graduate students, who's now a PhD student for Dr. Conrad at Chapel Hill, uh, Montana Eck, he, in his study, found that the uh, occurrence of just of snow in general seems to be dropping off. And, you know, for us snow fans, we've been kind of noticing that trend uh, since we got kind of into the past the 2010, 2011 winter. Um, so the question of course is, is it linked to our changing climate or is it something that's just kind of a, a blip on the, the radar? So uh, the jury is still out, but uh, we haven't been seeing as, as frequent uh, classic Northwest flow snow, I would say in the last five years as, as we had been seeing earlier. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we had Montana on earlier this year. Um, I, we didn't really talk about Northwest flow snow all that much. So we may have to have him back on to talk about that study at some point. Yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting. And speaking of Montana, he lived, uh, was born in McDowell County. So next questions for the foothill locations and even you were telling us before the show, you kind of live in the South Asheville area. Uh, occasionally, we can see those snow streamers make it off the mountains and even affect portions of the foothills. Is that correct? Right. So when you read the GSP discussion and the Roanoke discussion, they talk about the chances of spillover. So if you get the gradient just right and you get the destabilization just right, you can get these uh, kind of la longitudinal snow bands that can push the snow beyond the primary ridgeline along the Tennessee-North Carolina border. So you have to have some really strong winds. So that, of course, implies a pretty good pressure gradient. And if you can get that banding going, then uh, those bandings, those bands can set up in one spot for quite some time. So you can get a fair amount of accumulation if you happen to be underneath those bands. And uh, we had some time where we would go up to Avery County and launch weather balloons while these things were happening. And it's kind of spooky when you're under the band, you of course are getting tons of snow. And then you look over to the horizon in the sky and you can see the moon. So these bands are very narrow and very intense in snow snowfall. And then not very far away on either side of the sky, it's you're seeing stars and you're seeing the moon. So it's kind of a weird uh, feeling. But yeah, when you get that spillover effect in these strong bands, you can you can even get uh, some snow accumulation in the foothills. But that tends to be a fairly rare occurrence. 
Yeah, to jump in with that, uh, I live in, in Burke County. Uh, so occasionally on those heavier uh, Northwest flow snow events up near the Lake James area over towards uh, Table Rock into the to the northern portions of Burke County and western Burke County, you can you can see you can you can drive along Lake James and, and like Dr. Miller was talking about, there'll be like maybe two or three mile wide path of like you know a dusting of snow on the ground and then you know you drive away from that and it's just it, you wouldn't even know that there was snow in the area. So it, it's really really crazy to see how these bands set up and that that's one thing um, as we see these. Uh, bigger northwest flow events happen in the mountains. We're always kind of anxious. Well, part of the uh, the foothills see these snow snow bands set up. So it, it is really a really cool thing to see uh, if we get some of these bigger uh, northwest flow events. It is, and unfortunately, we haven't had a real classic event since Go 16. I think Go 16 would really show very nicely the streaky uh, snow accumulation that we could see in the previous GO satellite, but with the resolution we have now, it would really be a fascinating picture. So hopefully we can get some good examples this winter. Yeah, and a lot of this has to do with elevation too. Um, in my time when I was living in West North Carolina, Scotty, kind of like what you were just saying, um, I could think of several occasions where I would drive up to Mount Mitchell and you'd start in the valley and it'd be in the mid 50s and kind of sprinkling and you get up there and it's feels like a, you know, a blizzard compared to what was going on in the valley. And, and it'd be, you know, early May um, on that topic. So early versus mid-season snowfalls, is there any impact of the Great Lakes freezing over on the, the you know, snowfall totals in these events? Uh, there absolutely, absolutely would be um, if we have a, a favorable fetch with the, the air parcels coming over the Great Lakes. Um, but, you know, we, I can think of the classic uh, case back in February 2008 where we had a four-day event. I mean, me and my students were up there launching weather balloons for four days. It was exhausting, but it was a blast. And, you know, February, usually by then the Great Lakes should be frozen over. So even after they get frozen over, uh, you can still pick up moisture from the underlying surface, whether it's, you know, ice and sublimation or sometimes even just getting a rain event over the land. Uh, can provide some moisture. So when you get winds that are uh, as strong as they are between the anticyclone and that pressure gradient between that and the low, uh, these, when you get strong winds, it's going to pick up some moisture off the underlying surface. So uh, a Great Lakes freezing over is not a showstopper for Northwest flow snow. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just one of the many different parts and little things and meteorolog meteorological effects that go into making these systems. Um, and, and on that, the dendritic growth zone, can you tell us exactly what that is and how snowfalls um, that occur within that you know, layer can kind of maximize uh, the efficiency? Sure. So when we talk about making snow in our intro class and in our uh, physical meteorology class, we talk about the fact that you've got these ice nuclei and then you've got supercooled liquid water and supercooled liquid water basically feeds the developing ice crystals and in the uh, minus, 5, minus 10 to minus 15 celsius range that growth is optimized because the well, well get into detail some other day but um, that dendritic growth is really where essentially saturate or supercooled water gives up uh, water vapor to the growing ice crystals. So you get the maximized snow growth efficiency. And so if you can get your, remember these clouds are very low. They're all contained within the boundary layer. So, you know, they're no higher than one and a half to two kilometers up. That's the cloud top. Uh, 
And so if you get minus 10 to minus 15 C within that range of the cloud, you know, just add and below the 850 millibar level, you're going to have optimal ice growth. And that's when you get some really good snow. And uh, Dr. Perry has taken some pictures during our events of ice crystals. And it's just fascinating to watch after the cold front first goes through. Of course, we got a lot heavily imed or heavily rhymed crystals. And then as things get colder and colder and colder, things get more pure, you know, the rhyming stops and we get more of the hexagonal uh, habits. And so it's really fascinating to watch how the snow evolves during a Northwest flow event. More of our conversation when the Carolina Weather Group returns after this short break. Welcome back to the Carolina Weather Group. Gosh, I'm sure Brad Panovich would love to be here to, to talk to you about that because he's <laughs> he's a he's a guru when it comes to, to dendritic growth layer and, and uh, it's fascinating. Uh, wow, geeking out here a little bit. I'm going to continue some of this. Um, getting to uh, back to the frequency, you mentioned that we haven't had as much in the last five years, I uh, wanted to kind of graze on that a little bit. In, in a normal kind of setting, how many events would we normally have? Or is, is there any kind of pattern or is it really just based on um, what's going on? Maybe even with El Nino and La Nina, does that have any factor into it as well? Yeah, they do. Um, primarily, just if you take on average, you know, you're going to have to kind of talk about which region specifically. But let's say the northern mountains in North Carolina, it's certainly not unusual to have well, in the old days, and I'm talking early 2000s, you know, anywhere from maybe 10 to 15 events over the course of a winter. Um, recently, though, it's it's been fewer than that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we've been keeping as close track recently, but uh, I would say, you know, less than 10 to 15 per year in the northern mountains of North Carolina. So it's a combination of a couple things. You know, there's a lot of it's like baking, you know, you got to get all these ingredients right at the, at the right time. I, I suspect it's been the, the storm track has been, you know, changed a little bit. Definitely relatively warm winters has been the, the big problem. And then I think even there's been a change in the uh, anti-cyclone that, that's supposed to build over the Mississippi River Valley that we just haven't been getting those very strong cold air outbreaks to create the proper anticyclone to get the right flow over the mountain. So it's been a whole host of issues, but I suspect the leading problem is we just haven't been getting the cold air masses. Right. And that sort of build, builds right into my next question, which is going to be, you know, we start to look at global patterns. We, we talk about teleconnections, right? Where mm -hmm. we have energies in other parts of the world that funnel into some of the surge of energies that extend into North America and down into along the polar jet stream. So uh, a lot of folks know that as, as jet stream dips, you know, that, that they hear about. Um, some other folks hear that as uh, the, um, you know, the polar vortex is coming or whatever, you know, the, the sort of thing. But these, these dips in the jet stream, these swings across the country have a lot to do with this Northwest flow occurring. And so what does it take for, upstream energies to make it into our into North America for these to occur more frequent? Well, we want to have a highly amplified upper level wave. So, and then we want the trough kind of somewhere along near the East Coast. 
And so, you know, if you think about a positive PNA pattern, but you might want that PNA high amplitude wave shifted a little bit maybe to the west so you can get that storm tracking right along the east coast instead of if if we're too far in the middle of the cold air then we don't get enough moisture you know you got to have that cyclone kind of nearby in proximity so whatever tell connections that can force a, a positive pna pattern where the eastern trough is maybe not at the coast but maybe shifted a little westward so we can get that cyclone up into maine uh, that would probably be the ideal scenario. Um, there have been studies and Montana looked at teleconnections in his paper and uh, certainly an El Nino uh, tends to increase the chances of having a snowier than normal winter. However, you know, there have been some forecast offices that have looked closely at that and, you know, we, the last really good El Nino that we had, it ended up being the winter was way too warm to have any kind of snow. So uh, most of the time El Nino is helpful because it activates the subtropical jet and that gets the Gulf lows going. And Gulf lows are really good to get, first of all, synoptic scale snow. And then as they turn into, they develop, you know, a coastal Hatteras cyclone that can turn into a nor'easter and a nor'easter hanging around the northeast then is really good for us to get northwest flow snow. So I would say an El Nino can be helpful if we don't have too warm of a, a winter as we saw in the last, the most recent strong El Nino winter. Interesting. One last question for me, I'm gonna pass it over. I think Scotty's next. Miller A or Miller B, which setup is the best for uh, enhanced Northwest flow? I would say Miller A is, Miller B tends to get, then we start getting into the yucky mix P-type kinds of questions, even up in the mountains. You know, it doesn't take much of a warm nose to completely ruin your day. And so Miller B definitely increases the chance of, of disappointment. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We hate those. Uh, as I tell everybody, sleep kills a snow forecast. Any, any type of sleep kills it. Um, speaking of, we, we saw a little bit of Northwest flow last night, and it was kind of hard to depict on radar. In fact, we were mentioning earlier before the show started, uh, GSP had kind of tweeted out, hey, is anybody seeing any snowfall? Why is it so hard that we... Uh, can, can't pick it up too much on radar in these lighter events. Is it just because the light precipitation, maybe just radar coverage? What's your thoughts on that? Well, we, we have noticed, you know, when they made the changeover to dual polarization on the 88D network, uh, it, they, you know, you trade one thing for another thing. So you get the benefit of du the dual polarization, which of course tells you what, what the uh, particles look like. But, the price you pay for that is that the reflectivity sensitivity goes down. And when you're talking about Northwest flow clouds, they are a boundary layer cloud. So they're really low and they're primarily snow. So, you know, the reflectivity already is reduced. So if you reduce the energy that you're getting because you've, you know, switched over to dual polarization, you're not going to pick up, even if it were a classic Northwest flow event, it's not going to be as easy to pick up those really low level clouds. So last night's event was, it was just warm. So, and, and I don't think that the, the dynamic forcing was there. So whatever clouds were generated were definitely very low, but also very thin. And so the chances of having any interaction with the microwaves bouncing into any hydrometeors was pretty low. And so I think that's why GSP was trying to get some boots on the ground observations because they recognize that these cloud tops are probably way too low 
with the mountains interfering with their, you know, zero, the lowest uh, scan. And I would like to interject here and say that's why we recommend everyone download the free app MPink. Uh, it's, it's basically you can tell us what the weather is doing in your area. And I actually was looking at it last night, saw a, sneef, a few snowflake reports up in the mountains. So that's why I was like, hmm, I wonder if it's snowing. Then a few people uh, actually had tweeted some pictures. But the Imping app, just a little plug for that. Great app to download. It's free, and you can just tell us what's going on in your neighborhood. It kind of helps us forecasters, meteorologists, know what's uh, what's going on so we can better forecast uh, the current conditions. And I, I love that app because we sometimes need to know if we're going to launch a weather balloon or not, and we don't want to do it in cold rain. We want to do it after it's starting to snow, and if we can see the snow obs are starting to move closer and closer to our area, we'll delay a weather balloon launch. So it's very useful. I want to keep this radar conversation going. So there used to be a smaller radar um, on Poga Mountain. I'm saying that correct. And that may still be where you launch soundings from. I'm not sure. Can you tell us a little bit about the station you had set up there? Yeah. So this was a, a upward pointing uh, radar and it was a property of uh, Dr. Sandra Uter at NC State. And so it doesn't scan the way an 88D does. It's just upward pointing. And so it tells you uh, both the size of the particles and basically gives you reflectivity, but it also is able to give you the fall speed. And so through that, you can kind of tease out whether it's a liquid, you know, raindrop or ice. So it's a great way of, it's, it's powerful and intense enough that it can give you the full profile of the cloud. So you can see both the cloud top and cloud base. And of course it's running all the time. So any cloud that goes right overhead, you're watching the full evolution of, of what's coming in and what's gone past. So it's a great way of seeing how uh, the cloud is changing from primarily liquid particles to ice particles. And so it's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating tool to watch how these things, uh, I guess, evolve with time. So it's, it's a micro rain radar, MRR. So if you look that up, it's a, I believe a German company and these days relatively inexpensive. So there are actually quite a few that are out there looking at snow events. That's pretty neat. Um, so I want to transition away from some of this more uh, techie talk and do something a little bit more fun. Um, for the viewers that are listening for sure. Can you tell us about your most memorable moment uh, with Northwest Flow of Snow? Yeah, uh, so being up in Avery County by far had the most uh, fascinating uh, stories. And uh, as I said, our February 2008 was a four-day event. So we had tag team. When I brought up three students and App State had a bunch of students. And fortunately, we had a, a place to stay so we could catch up on sleep. But there's nothing like waking up at three o'clock in the morning to the snow that's just coming down in droves and you're walking down this mountain road, hoping you don't slip and fall, you know, and uh, getting down from where we were sleeping just now to uh, getting ready to be on call for the next eight hours. And so the sensation of inflating a weather balloon at four o'clock in the morning with a goat chewing on straw right next in the stall, right next to you in the barn uh, was something I'll never forget. And then walking that balloon out and trying to hold on for dear life while you've got these, you know, 10, 15, 20 mile per hour winds and incredible wind gusts. You know, these weather balloons are six, seven feet in diameter. And when you've got winds howling like that, you're holding on to that balloon for dear life. And uh, just really the adrenaline rush of 
getting the balloon going. It doesn't get caught in a tree and you start watching the data come in. It's really fun and exciting to, to see that. So we've got some classic soundings that uh, we've included in some of our papers and uh, it's just a, a really fun experience and it's fun for the students too because it's, uh, you know, just don't get an opportunity to do that very often. Yeah, and you already mentioned in your research, can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the research that you're working on now and what, what you have planned for the future? Yeah, it, well, it's Dr. Perry and I have talked for quite some time about trying to get a, a field project going, but you know, if Northwest flow snow is going to become more and more of a rare event, then uh, that idea may not happen. Uh, but um, yeah, basically doing some more model simulations. We're always uh, doing weather balloon launches. Uh, our current challenge now is helium is becoming so expensive and making the changeover to hydrogen is gonna be a difficult sell at the university. So we have to figure that one out. But uh, the model simulations of these things are always fascinating. And Hurricane Sandy was a really interesting event that uh, there's so many things I could go back and look at that with that event that, that I'd like to try with our uh, computer weather models. You're reading my mind on that. That's what I was going to ask next. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why Sandy was so unique? Well, of course, you've got the transition from a tropical system to an astrotropical system. So moisture is not an issue with this thing. And so what we found in our, our paper that came out a few years ago was that the wind direction wasn't even optimal with the mountains. But because it's a remnants of a hurricane, the wind speeds were just incredible. And so, you know, places like Mount LeConte and all in that area saw snow accumulations of, you know, three feet. And then with the winds, the, you know, the drifts got to be four or five feet. And so, you know, we're talking about a Halloween event where Mount LeConte is seeing, you know, four to five feet of snow. It's just ridiculous. Uh, so again, when you get that much moisture, even if the winds aren't perfectly optimal with the ridgeline because they're so strong it doesn't matter it's just going to force all kinds of northwest flow snow and the ironic thing was here in the valley of Asheville we just saw rain we had no idea that that much snow was happening up in the mountains so uh, it was a pretty incredible event from that perspective. I've got one last question before I throw it over back over to Scotty when you're doing the research and especially looking at past events, how do you single out Northwest flow events from weather station data? Um, it's a lot of old fashioned looking at weather maps. You know, the real challenge can be when you've got a synoptically driven snow event and then the Northwest flow snow comes in right after it, you know, how do you separate the two? So, it's hard to think of a way you could come up with a computer algorithm to actually do that uh, automatically. So it really is looking at a lot of surface pressure maps and saying, okay, the cold front now has gone through for a long enough time. Now the snow that fell during this other period has to be Northwest flow snow. So, you know, just because the winds are from the Northwest doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's part of Northwest flow snow. So it is a lot of uh, old fashioned detective work looking through the maps. Maybe it's not paper maps, but your you know, eyes are getting glazed looking at the computer screen for so long at all these different uh, dig digitized uh, archive maps. So it's kind of fun, but uh, you really have to be a weather geek and a snow fan to wade through all those maps. 
And I think, Doug, we were, we've, we've seen time and time again in, in a lot of GIFs and loops, and we're looking at satellite imagery all the time, Go 16, and, and we see, see some of the setups sometimes where we get cloud streeting, streaming down from the Great Lakes as it approaches and goes across the Ohio Valley and, and sweeps up into the Tennessee Valley and, and a little bit northward. You can start to see that appear in the cloud streeting, and you almost kind of know what's getting ready to occur on some of these events, correct? Absolutely. In fact, the, the best radar to look at is Morristown, Tennessee. You know, don't even bother with the North Carolina side. Uh, Morristown can really give you a good sense. And I would say even to some, some degree, uh, you look, go back and look at IR imagery and you can kind of look at the moisture. It's literally this blob. It kind of looks like a cloud, but it's, it's not. It's, it, it's this basically large blob of moisture coming down from the, the Great Lakes. So uh, both the upstream radar and the, the IR can give you a hint that something's about to happen. And going back to uh, Evan's question, one of the things that also was very striking is that there was this kind of lull between the precip associated with the cold front and the winds would die down, it would get clear sky for a while, and then all of a sudden, the winds would really get going as the bulk of the continental polar air starting to roll in from Canada and the winds would pick up and the temperature would drop like crazy. And then all of a sudden, once the winds reach a certain threshold, then you're getting Northwest flow snow coming in. I think Scotty, uh, Scotty you, in, you in or are you on mute still? I was on mute, my bad. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Miller, uh, we're closing in on the nine o'clock hour. Uh, if, if folks want to kind of dig into your research, is there any websites? Uh, do you have a, I know you guys have the UNC a uh, weather Twitter page. Is there anything that uh, folks can look into to, to see more information about Northwest Flow and some of the research you all are doing? Yeah, I think uh, if you go and, and look at, uh, we've had some articles in weather and forecasting and, and BAMs. Just look up, I mean, the keywords Northwest Flow Snow, and that should get you to uh, some articles that are. Uh, really interesting. I think in particular the article that we did on Sandy uh, would be really fascinating just because of all the extremes that happened with that event. Um, I'm trying to solve the problem with the helium hydrogen conversion. So uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to do soundings this winter, um, but we'll definitely be keeping that going uh, and hopefully be able to get mobile again. We've been kind of hanging on the UNCA campus over the last several winters. So my goal is to try to get out there and maybe sample uh, different places along the mountains. I'm always fascinated by, if you look at the Pigeon River, the I-40 corridor through the Pigeon River, there's always seems to be a band that sets up right in there. And I want to understand why they get so much snow right in that area during these Northwest flow snow events. But a lot of things, as I was mentioning to Evan, that we can do both out there in the field and then also in our um, computer weather model world uh, to try to figure these things out. And yeah, good, are... good. I was oh, going to go say, ahead, good point about the uh, the weather balloons for for the watchers tonight, our viewers. Um, there's been a helium shortage for quite some time. It's been extremely difficult to get helium in the right places. So uh, a lot of play, a lot of folks are starting to convert to hydrogen, which is a, a, a highly flammable. Um, it's it's like um you know we gotta, we gotta be kind of careful so there's different laws about like weather services or, or you know i think some of them are staying with helium but it's extremely difficult situation and it's even affecting the weather services i think nws charleston had to cut back on some of their soundings for a while i'm not sure it's still going on 
Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I would say most offices are converting over to hydrogen. And the reason they have those buildings far away from everyone, uh, the, the balloon inflation buildings, is because they are uh, changing over to hydrogen. So, you know, I'm going to have to figure out how to design a building away from all the other buildings on campus. And uh, you have to go through an, a de-static uh, procedure, you know, in the wintertime, of course, Static electricity is a huge concern. So you have to figure out a way to kind of get rid of the charge in your own body first before you even uh, start messing with a balloon that's got hydrogen in it. So there's definitely a lot more considerations uh, that you didn't have to worry about with helium. So it's it's a, a decent challenge. One last question before we let you go. I don't want to bring Shay in. Um, because we have another tropical storm, believe it or not. But uh, uh, Dr. Miller, last question. I should ask you this before I told you to tell us about your, your information where we can find it. Uh, what, what is your, uh, your outlook for this winter, uh, snow-wise? What, what do you feel like is going to happen? Do you have any, any predictions you'd like to give out? I have not been doing that. Um, I've been really disappointed the last, I'd say, five winters. Um, it's going to be interesting with a neutral, you know, neither El Nino or La Nina, the chance I think is there for us. And we've already seen some really good cold air outbreaks here in the East. Uh, they just haven't hung on as long as, you know, we would like. So uh, I think the potential is there. Uh, it's really going to depend on if the Western part of the country is going to ever give up their monopoly on the cold air. They seem to always be the last couple of winters, the large scale weather pattern. And, and this is another area of study, you know, why have they been getting the lion's share of the cold air uh, is, is an interesting story. So if we can continue the trend that we've seen with a couple of good shots of cold air here in the East, then I, I feel like our chances are pretty good. I keep telling my students, you know, the moisture is not the issue. When we're this close to the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean, we're gonna have plenty of moisture. The question is, can we get the cold air in at the right time? And the last several winters, it's just always been off a little bit. So I, I feel like this winter has a really good chance of being above normal, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put a number out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough, fair enough. I, I think we all agree that the potential is there. It's just getting everything to line up. Uh, so Dr. Miller, thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Miller is a professor at University of North Carolina at Asheville, and I just seen I don't know if it was today or yesterday, but it looks like you got a new colleague there. Jason Boyer is going to be teaching some meteoro uh, broadcast meteorology classes. Yes, our students are very excited to be able to uh, take a class uh, from Jason Boyer. So it's going to be a really great opportunity. Hopefully we get a lot of students to sign up for that class. Yeah, and I think he's, he's just as excited as probably the students there are. So uh, that's pretty cool. Um, Dr. Miller, thank you so much. We would love to have you back on the program. We know... Uh, you're a big name here in North Carolina and you study a lot of things with weather. And, uh, you know, we're talking about next year, maybe doing some shows about uh, for students who are going into the profession. Evan had kind of talked about this. So maybe we can have you back on and kind of just uh, pick your brain about uh, meteorology in general in, in college. And, and for those folks who are interested growing up, maybe you can give them some sound advice. So hopefully we can uh, get you back on the program soon. That'd be great. And I've got a chapter in a book coming out soon. So I want to come back to plug the Ooh. book. Yes, we will. We will have Evan put put Evan on you and we'll get you on the uh, the calendar uh, for next year. And we'll definitely would love to uh, to have you with that. So Dr. Miller, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us this evening. Uh Our conversation continues coming up next.
Thanks for staying with us. We'll pick up our conversation now on this week's episode of the Carolina Weather Group. I do want to switch over to Shay Gibson. Shay, uh, I know we are rounding into, what is it, 10 days left of the tropical season, and we just can't get rid of all these crazy tropical storms. Yeah, yeah, we've got 10 days left. So, I mean, we're, we're almost there. But even, you know, think about um, the fact that we have had some post you know, season storms, you know, we've had some things bleed over into December and even January. Uh, we had one uh, a few years back that developed in the far in, in the eastern Atlantic, eastern North Atlantic. But, um, you know, for the most intense purposes, the official forecast or the official season for the Atlantic Basin does end on November the 30th. Uh, with that said, I'm going to share my screen and um, narrow it down. Let me, let me know when you can see this. I think you can now. Um, so here's the uh, National Weather Service, I'm sorry, National Hurricane Center. Uh, 6 p.m. update. We have Tropical Storm Sebastian. It's just north of the Lesser Antilles and is moving to the north. It's very slowly at six miles per hour. Winds are 50 miles per hour. This is a warm body of water, warm air. There's a little bit of southwest shear imparting some. Um, it's pushing the cloud tops off the top, so it's limiting its vertical um, vertical stacking. But you can see it here on this GIF from our buddy uh, uh, Levi Cowan. We say Dr. Levi Cowan now of Tropical Tidbits. And you can see the center really kind of displaced over here to the west. And you have some of the southwest shear across the storm right now. But it is, it does, is maintaining a relatively impressive core for this time of the year. This air off to the northeast, or I'm sorry, the northwest is actually on the cooler side now. And if it were to head off to the northwest, it would probably move over cooler waters and die off. But it's going to head to the north and then eventually curve over. We look at the track, we see it's going to, it's going to quickly move off Thursday into Friday. Um, off to the northeast and that will go to its we call that the viking send-off off to its graveyard and uh, that should be it i don't think there's anything anticipated beyond now and the end of the hurricane season so just <clears throat> just to be aware it's not going to be affecting the united states or bermuda uh, other than just a few additional swells from a distance uh, some swells on puerto rico are showing up now uh, along with some of the bvi and usvi areas some of the northern lesser antilles and uh, just be aware of it, but mainly for shipping interest at this point. And, and hopefully that's going to be it, Scotty. And he's back on mute again. He would then think he, by the was, 300 doing, first show. I was doing th two things at once. I was communicating with James. He said, we got our, our news segment lined up, and I forgot to unmute my mic. So, 301, know, 301 shows, shows and six we're still years. Doing. Six years, Scotty. We're still amateurs at this. Huh? <laughs> uh, all right, James, to you and the news, my friend. Oh, man, that makes it sound like I'm supposed to have epic news music or something to introduce this news segment. But hello from Charlotte, everybody, where I will add, it's a very nice night here. We take a live look outside. A new camera from our friends at WeatherStem in partnership with WCCB Television, giving us this lovely view of uptown Charlotte in real time. Looking forward to using this camera not only to watch the sky, but we can see the ground and the trees there. If we ever do get some snow in Charlotte, we've got a great angle. And I think we even have uh, some planes taking off from Charlotte Douglas uh, International Airport in this uh, particular angle tonight. Uh, you know, it was uh, real windy here in Charlotte over the weekends and across the Piedmont uh, as we were watching that nor'easter roll on through it was the uh, hardest hit areas along the coast though that really will remember this near hurricane force wind gusts 
from this offshore nor'easter. Frying pan shoals buoy coming in at 69 miles an hour over the weekend. 59 miles an hour in Joni Mercer Pier, Oak Island, 49. Little River, 49. Wilmington, 47. Myrtle Beach, about the same. But even inland, Marion and Florence uh, seeing wind gusts there at 45 and 39 miles an hour, respectfully. And uh, like I mentioned, it was it was windy uh, here in the... Uh, Charlotte metro area as well, too, so it was really an event that uh, a lot of us saw. Uh, Scotty, did you see any breezy conditions from the storm up in the uh, foothills? You know, it, it was breezy from time to time, but nothing crazy. We were kind of on that periphery, you know, just at the edge yeah. of, of the event. So, in fact, um, we were pretty sunny on Saturday when you guys was kind of sucked in with the clouds. But uh, you definitely can notice a breeze, especially as the system pulled off to the north. We kind of got that that northwest fetch of uh, winds coming down the mountains. But overall, it wasn't too bad. But, um, but yeah, it was a little breezy from time to time. Well, hey, James, no oh, go ahead, uh, Shay, please. I'm going to hop in here and uh, just share screen again real quick. Um, and and these, these preliminary reports that come out or initial reports that come out may not have all the data. They're still doing some reanalysis. But uh, one of our stations, Oregon Inlet, caught 60 miles per hour wow. on Saturday. So I mean, some of all the stations in our mezzanet, Along these coastal areas, Jeanette's Pier uh, being one. And let me see if I can archive back to Saturday. I think we got up to 60 miles an hour there, too. So some of these stations, frying pan shoals a little high up. It's a little bit biased in its height. But the, the main thing here is that we had 60 mile an hour winds and gusts and sustained winds of tropical storm force um, in, yeah. in, for, for a long period of time. This created a lot of flooding problems for. The outer banks as well. I think Highway 12 is still closed in many sections, especially between Avon and, and Rodanthe. I mean, it's pretty bad up there. there. There's a lot of, you know, you got six to eight foot of sand just piled up over roads, filled in pools and everything. And, and this is just an another one of these ongoing events that continues to happen in the outer banks as, um, you know, sea level rise has having its effects. Our, our tidal fluxing is still having its effects. And then you get one storm and it's going to have massive flooding events. So, yeah, our friend Mark Suddeth uh, was riding out the storm, Shay, on uh, the Outer Banks, and you can see it right here where all this water inundation was coming up, about three or four feet of water inundation in places, and it pushed that water like you were talking about onshore, but also those piles of sand will pop up again. The pictures, uh, for those of you watching on our video platforms here live, as uh, NCDOT still working to clear off portions of NC-12, which uh, was inundated with sand and debris during Hurricane Dorian and here again uh, during this nor'easter and Shay mentioned it, uh, just that we had tropical storm force winds coming on through. This wasn't a tropical storm by definition, but the impacts were essentially the same. You know, Ricky Matthews, um, our panelist Ricky Matthews, um, brought up a good point. I, I don't can't remember, it was on Twitter Friday or Saturday, but he's like, you know, this is in all aspects, almost a tropical storm that's affecting the Outer Banks, creating a lot of storm surge, but since it didn't have a name, it didn't really get a lot of attention, you know, besides outside of the Carolinas. So uh, the four outer banks, I mean, there's not been major hurricanes that's hit through there this year, but um, it seems like this is the fourth or fifth event this year that they've seen a lot of storm surge damage. And uh, obviously with, with the hurricane earlier this year, but uh, just several storms like this throughout the year, that's really uh, caused some, some havoc out in the outer banks. Yeah, and this is still early. We're not even in December and January yet. So these uh, these nor'easters, this is about the time of year they start to really crank up. Uh, when you have a lot of warm air still trying to be displaced out of these storms, you have occluding fronts, you have a lot of 
uh, mid-latitude cyclone. You just, just these these cold air cyclones start to occur more frequently. And and we talked earlier about Miller A, Miller B setups. And so, um, you know, hopefully we won't have very many this year, but we know it's inevitable that we'll probably have a couple, few more to deal with um, before springtime rolls around and the and pattern shifts. So we, we shall see. Did you guys see the, the other video that Mark Sedeth put out um, of the seafoam on the beach just rolling and tumbling in the winds? Pretty incredible stuff. His caption, I feel like I'm on another planet and it does kind of look very, very spooky there. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, we've got another storm coming down the pipeline. Uh, this one could be here just in time for the Thanksgiving holiday. A map from uh, First Warren Chief Meteorologist uh, Brad Panovich shows us Wednesday at 8 o'clock here with heavy rains moving through a large portion of the Carolinas and snow, more snow in the Midwest. Uh, bring in our panel here and uh, get your thoughts, guys, on uh, we're still a week out. A lot could change, but it looks like we could be dealing with a horribly timed storm for all those people doing uh, holiday travel. Definitely so. That's, I, you probably would know more about this, James, than I, I would, but I think this is the busiest uh, week of travel, Thanksgiving, and then obviously Christmas, also another busy week. But you definitely don't want a big storm system like that to move through uh, during this time of the year. But unfortunately, it looks that way. We also uh, could see some heavy rain over the weekend as well, uh, anywhere between a half an inch to an inch of rain. Uh, possible in the Carolinas and then followed up by another storm system on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. So uh, as the holidays move in, it looks like we're going to see some stormy weather around here and that could definitely create some issues on the roadways. Yeah, we'll have to watch for that. And I do think this is one of the busiest, if not the busiest times of year to travel because it is such a short holiday window. And you can even see that we might get some warm air out ahead of this storm. So depending on the exact timing and setup, portions of the southeast may have to watch for a little severe weather to roll on through too as this storm then kind of pushes on through the region. So again, this is right now looking like Wednesday night. It's still a week out. Plenty could change. It could speed up. It could slow down. The intensities could change. But of course, we'll keep you posted on this throughout the weekend. Uh, another big uh, weather impactor that we saw across a lot of the Piedmont here, maybe not so much in the higher elevations, but it was very foggy the other night. It was seen in uh, Greensboro, too, by uh, WFMY's Tim Buckley, and it just kind of socked in the whole area. I think this was, was this Monday night into Tuesday, guys? It was, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, visibility at times here in the Charlotte area dropping to a tenth of a mile overnight. Um, you know, I got to work the next morning. They told me the commute was slow on Tuesday, not as bad as it could have been because, uh, again, about that 1, 2 a.m. hour, we got down to about a tenth of an, a mile visibility. It improved slightly in time for that morning rush. But, uh, again, I think could have been a lot worse. And, again, we talked about this actually on a Facebook Live I did Monday night, you know, with the, um, the way the winds were calm and that dew point and that air temperature were kind of really close together combined with having a cloud deck just kind of keeping the temperatures from dropping out and cooling down too much at the surface is really what created uh this fog event and it was it was very interesting a lot of good pictures on, on social if, if that's your type of thing and i imagine it is if you're watching this show <laughs> um last but not least in the uh, pile of stuff i've got here we have two birthday wishes going out one to wbtv chief meteorologist eric thomas who celebrated a birthday within the past week, as well as Brad Panovich, who had a birthday yesterday. So I think there's been a lot of uh, cupcakes guys in uh, Charlotte area 
uh, newsrooms. And uh, there, you know, there you have it. Two of our best guests who's come on the show numerous times and no cupcakes or birthday cake for us. I mean, come on. Right, we were probably congrats. supposed to send it to them. I think that's how that works. Uh, we virtually we should have had a virtual birthday party. You know, we could have tied that in with the 300 show last week. We're planning so. on our part. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! But yeah, happy birthday, Eric and Brad. Uh, I know uh, we appreciate all you guys do here in the Carolinas. So here's to many, many more. I enjoyed the sun today. By the way, it was nice. It was a nice sunny day. Finally. Finally a sunny day, and maybe one more tomorrow before more rain moves in for the weekend. So. I don't want to make y'all too jealous, but we're supposed to push 70 don't degrees down me. here in don't Charleston. Well, don't that's going to do it for tonight. Friday. I can't stand to listen to any more of that. <laughs> 70 degrees, but I tell you what, our waters have dropped to like 56. Ooh. Yeah, you know? it's brutal. See, we today, today it was like 58 here in Morganton. But it was just still a little bit of a, a breeze. And it just, you know, you still had to wear like a jacket or something. Mm-hmm. And it was warm if the wind wasn't blowing. But, you know, just a little slightest breeze and it made it feel cool, chilly. So, Evan, your city yeah. looks nice tonight, too, on the College of Charleston live it's camera. It's beautiful. Right before the show was starting, I was just sitting out on our porch enjoying it. Hey, what we have a meteor shower on uh, the next couple of nights, right? We do, and it has a crazy name. It's not, it's not the Leonid, is it? No, it's Metro, something with a unicorn, uh, right? Metal. Yeah, the unicorn. So yeah, unicorn. I remember unicorn and like, it's it's weird. It's like I've, we're passing through a comet, and we're passing through the debris field. It's supposed to be like meteor star thing. I read an article by a uh, you know somebody that works over at NASA today, and it kind of diminished my hopes a little bit. I know that kills the vibe for this conversation, um, but he was just discussing how it's not necessarily for sure that you know everyone's probably seen four thousand to. I'm sorry, 400 to 1,000 meteors in just a matter of minutes as the advertised total. Um, but more realistically, it could be more you know, around 100 to 200. But still, it's I mean, amazing. That. No, in, in, in like half an hour, I'd say. Well, James, let's get the NASA feed up with the cool music, and, and uh, we can go live with that and see if we can reach people in Hawaii again. Uh, that would be cool. By the way, we will mention on this uh, particular meteor shower I think it's a small window as well, too. I think it's approximately 11.50 p.m. Eastern Time, Thursday, November 21st. Then as we strike into midnight and come into the 22nd, but I think the whole thing lasts like half an hour, I think. Just the, the burst is supposed to be that time frame. Okay. The meteor shower has been happening for, I'm sure it's a probably a multi-day period. Okay. Um, I was out last night and I could see some meteors. So. Yep, so the, the official name of it is called the Alpha Mon- Mana... Right, monoceratid. I'm glad you attempted that because I wasn't going anywhere near it. Hey, James. Yeah. You were, you were talking about birthdays. I was scrolling through our Twitter feed here on TweetDeck, and I tweeted out yesterday uh, is the uh, in 2016 was when we launched Goes R. Well, yeah, of course. They launched Goes, it for Brad's birthday. Yes, yeah, Goes is that Goes R is now Goes 16, right? I'm getting them mixed up. That's Ghost correct. S is, yeah. So Go 16 was launched uh, this time four years ago on Brad's birthday. I think Brad was actually down there covering it. So That would be a cool birthday. Yeah. So launching rockets on Brad's birthday. But uh, Dr. Miller was talking about Go 16. Um, maybe, Dr. Miller, you can use some of that magic so we can get some good Northwest flow and, and get some uh, some good images on Go 16. 
I've got one of those. I'll screen share that real quick. I was digging through right before um, before the show ends because I know we're running out of time. But if you want to see what a super weak Northwest flow looks like, this was back in April of this year. Very westerly, but that's generally pretty cool. And with the staving, I'm sorry, standing wave clouds as well. Very good. Yeah, yeah cool. I was very excited to save that loop. Anyways, that's all I got. My face. Right. Yeah, I, well, I blew up the satellite map and then I... <laughs> Audio people on listening on our podcast feed are like, this is why you should just listen to the podcast. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I, I guess we'll go ahead and end the show tonight. Next week is the day before Thanksgiving, so we're not going to have a live show, but I think internally, unless this has changed today and I've not caught up on it, we're going to be re-airing our talk with Dr. Tracy Farna from last year, mm-hmm. talking about Red Tide. Red Tide has uh, become uh, another, well, not another story, but an old story that is now a new story. Uh, it's uh, on the rise again in Florida. So we're going to talk about uh, Red Tide. It was a great show last year. So uh, if you didn't get to catch it, we hope you will join next week. And if you did catch it, well, watch it again. It's a pretty good show. Uh, some good content in there to help you uh, understand what Red Tide is all about. And then we will come back on the first week of December and we'll have on with this uh, weather brain panelist and chief meteorologist in um in Virginia, uh, Charlottesville, just outside of Charlottesville, Aubrey Urbanowitz. She'll be joining us uh, from uh, uh, the ABC station up there, and she'll be our guest. So uh, we'll, um, Aubrey will kind of finish out the uh, – we've had every weather brain panelist except Aubrey. So she's going to kind of make it full circle as uh, she'll be our last guest with the weather brains panelist. But she's also doing a lot of other things. It has a really uh, unique weather story. So we'll dive into that as well when she gets here. So that's all I got. You guys have anything yes, guys, else? We got, uh, don't forget, we have Jim Cantori coming on with us December 18th at 7 o'clock. Okay. We're going to do a little bit of earlier showing that night. So I, I'm going to confirm with him uh, probably tomorrow just to touch base but you know we have that to look forward to and we're just going to talk weather 2019 with him and most memorable events and and uh some of the more impacting events for the united states yeah so since shay teased jim cantori so we have aubrey uh we have uh evan you and i uh, will really geek out about this because we saw this gentleman michael binsky uh storm chaser photographer he was out in the plane no way. out there mike's going to awesome. be on the show December 12th, I think, is that following Wednesday. And then we'll kind of close out with Jim Cantori for the year 2019. So, yeah, if you haven't seen uh, Ilbinski's work, go to, just go to YouTube. He's done 4K, amazing, amazing work. You got to see it and then bring your questions to the show because it's something else. I'll tell you what, yeah. he's amazing. <laughs> it's the best video you'll ever watch. Yes, it's really, really good stuff. And I'm sure he'll let us show it on the show while we're talking to him. So, all right, guys. Well, uh, anything else before we hop off here? All right. Well, we hope you all have a great weekend. Have a safe and happy uh, Thanksgiving. If you're out traveling, uh, make sure that you're safe. Hey, if you are out traveling, send us some of your travel photos. We'd love to see them. Tweet them to us at Carolina WX Group. And uh, if you see any interesting weather or anything like that, you can do that. And we'll be sure to respond and retweet them out. So until uh, next time, we'll see you here on the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, We hope you have a great weekend and a great Thanksgiving. And we'll see you back in December. Awesome. Thank you so much, Doug. That was awesome. Absolutely. And uh, I'll be glad to come back and talk about warm season rain 
and atmospheric rivers if you are interested Ooh, yeah Ooh. we are very interested <laughs> yeah so i've got a, a couple of papers that have come out on that topic and the, the chapter 